Consumers aren't against brands invading their digital space, but brands aren't always capitalizing. So at the risk of stating the obvious, there's a lot to talk about in the digital content landscape. I'm David Kraft, and this is Stop the Scroll. So we're here with um, Alex Jenkins, who is the editorial director of Contagious Magazine. I just want to make sure I got your job title right yeah, there. Yeah, that's right, that's right. Brilliant. That's exactly what I'm doing. Brilliant. So, um, so yeah, so maybe just um, tell us a little bit about, about yourself, about uh, what you get up to with Contagious. And okay, so Contagious, we're sort of a, I suppose you call it a marketing intelligence company. We help people who work in marketing who want to get a competitive edge either through creativity or through innovation. So basically helping you get kind of better ideas faster. It's kind of, I suppose, the, the tagline we use quite a lot. Um, so we look at a, a huge amount of kind of advertising marketing from all around the world. We've got a global outlook and we kind of select very, very little of it to actually kind of cover and write about. Um, and we sort of talk about the top 1%. Um, the stuff which we're interested in is like what we think of like is the best of the best, the stuff which is kind of pushing stuff forward a little bit. Um, and then we try and deconstruct it. So we'll then, you know, if we, for example, write about a campaign, we'll go back to the agency, we'll find out what was the client's business objectives, what they're trying to achieve here, what was the insight, you know, what was the research, kind of you know, the, the strategy the planning department came up with. Then we'll look at the creative and then we'll follow up you know, a couple of months later and find out, did it work? So trying to tell that whole story of like, why did you do it? What was it yeah. you did? And did it work for you guys? And then hopefully other people can kind of learn from that and help them move forward as well. You clearly see a lot of great campaigns because yeah. you write about them, um, as well as some terrible pieces that should probably never see the light of day. Uh, I guess, you know, kind of in a maybe a cynical way, I would like to start off by asking about those those ones that didn't quite make it into Contagious, the ones that weren't perhaps that one percent. Um, because I think it's, it's really helpful to understand from a content perspective, are there any key themes that keep popping up into the ones that were almost there but not quite? You know, there was a lovely quote from you know, Mark Earls, the guy who wrote the book, Heard, uh, you know, some years ago. He said, you know, you've got to remember, on the internet, you're competing with kittens and porn. You're not competing against other brands. Mm. And I think the bad content we see, it's not that it's like disastrous super fails. It's just, you know, you can see why it would be good enough if you're sat in a marketing department you know, and you've got your, you know, your agency, your client, you're stroking your chin going, yeah, this, this hits all the right notes. Like the, we've got the logo in there, we've got the, the message. But as soon as you put it on the internet, it's just not interesting. Mm. And that's, I think for me, like the biggest um, crime of a lot of content is it's just not good enough. It's not that it's like harmful, it's just bland, it's boring, it's not creative. You know, a lot of it, you know, wasn't really even meant to be there in the first place. It was sort of, the internet's created this huge vacuum and people feel the need to just put stuff out onto it. You know, you know social media and you know, on Instagram and on YouTube, let's just, it exists, so let's do stuff on it. But it's a huge amount of crap, <laughs> basically. Yeah. yeah, definitely. I mean, because we have the debate all the time with, you know, internally or with, with other clients and saying, you know, it's not really about quantity. It's, it's about quality. If you produce you know, one Facebook post a month or one Instagram post a month, that doesn't really matter if it's better than all the other 30 you do if you produce one a day. Yeah. Do you think there's, there's a problem with quantity over quality on, on a large scale in the digital landscape? Yeah, definitely. And I think it is that feeling of you know, the internet 
being a vacuum and you feel the need to do it. And I think that is, you know, one, it's like if, you know, it's going back you know, a couple of years when Instagram and you know, Twitter were sort of new things, and brands go onto them, and it just seems this conveyor belt. Like once you've created a Twitter account, you can't not tweet. You know, you've got to, you know, you maybe put out, you know, a handful of campaigns per year. Now you're putting out like more than that per day in terms of messages. And it, you know, it's sort of the fear of silence, I think, is what's driving a huge amount of it, probably. It is interesting, though, you say that it's just there's a lot of crap content out there because when, you know, we had a follow up question to, OK, well, you know, when it comes to bad content from brands, you know, what makes bad digital content bad? And they just said, well, to be quite honest, it's either irrelevant or it's boring. It doesn't yeah. it doesn't apply to me or it's so uninteresting that I, I can't be bothered. Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, we use, we're talking about content and, you know, without really kind of pinning it down as a specific term. I think, you know, obviously within that, there's a, a huge array of different stuff. You know, you can have, you know, instructional how-to videos, like useful kind of, you know, fact-based content, just pure entertainment stuff. Um, and, you know, you see, you know, the bad content doesn't really fit into any of those stuff. It's not like, right, I was looking how to do a certain thing. This is a great how-to video on that. I'm just coming here to kill time. And this is like the funniest, almost entertaining, almost like emotive stuff I could find. It's just, we wanted to just talk about ourselves a bit, you know. And it's, it's the brand equivalent of just having like oversharing friends on Facebook. Just like, I didn't want to know that. Mm. I just did not want to know. Yeah, and, and I think it, it, it does kind of come back to the fact that brands, a lot of brands use social channels and digital channels on a, on a, on a more holistic view as online billboards. Obviously, you know, digital display is, is an online billboard, but there's a difference between digital display and, you know, an ad that has a placement in a Facebook newsfeed. Yeah, exactly. Big difference. I think one of the big, um, I don't know if you call it a mistake, but certainly like the, one of the mindsets which sort of uh, we see a lot is people just seeing kind of a new medium and thinking, oh, we'll just take, it looks a bit like the old one. So YouTube looks a bit like TV. Let's just use it like TV or, you know, a website, you know, oh, we can put banners on it. Oh, it's display ad. We'll, we'll use it like display ad. And trying to apply the same kind of media tactics rather than when they should be applying kind of the same kind of marketing theories that they know. Um, that's where a lot of brands, I think, go wrong. It's just sort of thinking, oh, we'll just do exactly what we did. And there's, there's a learning curve where it takes people a while to realise, oh, look, YouTube compared to TV is not the same. It's not interruptive in mm. that same regard. People come here, they, they are searching for something or they're looking for a certain thing, mm. and we can service that. People aren't searching for something on TV, they're sat there just to be entertained. Exactly, exactly. I mean, I think um, we, we had a meeting with, uh, with a client, and they said, oh, can you come in and, and take a look at our, our digital activity, specifically our social activity? Um, you know, they're working with a big above-the-line agency, they've done a really nice campaign, had a really lovely TV creative, but their social was, Hey, check out our latest TV ad. I'm just like, well, you know, why? Why does, <laughs> did you? Act, I mean, do you actually think that someone cares about your TV ad? That's that's a question that it kind of was in my head that I didn't actually ask overtly. But um, you just kind of think there's still this prestige around TV. Brands love to see their big TV ads, so it almost makes digital an afterthought. Yeah, an I think that is that is the case, and it's not. I mean, yeah. A lot of the research will tell you that like, 
TV is still hugely influential. I'm never going to say it's not hugely influential. But the, the afterthought effect is still very clear in digital. It's like, it's not saying that it's, you know, your TV is super important, which doesn't mean that uh, digital is worthless. But I mean, you still need to put some thought into it. Um, you know, a couple of years ago, uh, there was a pre-roll you know, for um, American insurance brand Geico, which actually won, you know, a lot of awards. Um, and we interviewed the guys who did it um, in the States, agency called the Martin Agency. Um, and so it was, uh, the pre-roll was like, it was the unskippable ad. You couldn't skip it because it only lasted like sort of three or four seconds. And went, you can't skip this ad because it's already over. Da -da, mm, Geico. Yeah. Um, and when we interviewed them, you know, they said, look, the reason so much pre-roll is bad is because it wasn't meant to be there. It's just an afterthought. Oh, we'll take our TV ad and we'll just stick it on there and assume that'll work. You know, and actually, they said, when we took the time to actually think about the behavior online and actually what people are trying to do and the context it's in, then like the unskippable pre-roll made 100% sense. It wasn't even a risk for us. It was just the most obvious thing to do. And that's the mindset shift. It's not going, oh, well, we've done the TV ad. Oh, I just bung it on as a pre-roll as well. Job done. Go back a few years when we started seeing clients specifically ask for YouTube content. And it was, it was different than above the line. It was like, we need YouTube content. And then when we go through brand manager approval and all the various share, uh, stakeholders were ticking off the boxes and then say, well, the problem is we don't have a big enough logo in the intro or we need to have an intro that is longer so that that brand message isn't missed. And it's kind of like, well, is the logo the brand message? Well, no, it isn't, but we need to make sure it's in there. And then you go back and you look at the results and the dropout rate was at eight seconds and the intro is 15 seconds, so they're not even seeing half your intro, <laughs> yeah, exactly. let alone any of the actual content yeah. that you well, paid to create. Yeah, we saw a lovely campaign recently from IKEA in uh, the campaign around in Sweden. Uh, I was about to say IKEA in Sweden. You know, they're from yeah. Sweden. Um, and again, it was, uh, it, it was a pre-roll campaign, and it was, um, I can't remember the actual name of the campaign itself, but it was something around, you know, like, you know, don't watch this campaign. It was like deliberately boring stuff. And so all you actually see is, like, for example, it's just someone stood in front of a sink doing some washing up. And the first thing you see is, like, you should skip this ad. Just skip this ad. Um, like, as soon as it comes up, like, you know, just skip it. And the ad itself goes on for another, like, five minutes of this person. And it's just them, like, doing the dishes. And occasionally, like, you know, a little sort of overlay comes up going, like, this lampshade above them. This is its name. It costs, like, you know, this much money. You can buy it. And they keep going. I, I, I'm just going to do the washing up here. It's, you know. Um, and again, we, when we interviewed the agency, they said, yeah, we found this amazing research which basically said that the average duration of people watching pre-roll was like six seconds. It basically takes five seconds for that little, can I skip the ad button to come up? And then it takes them one second to actually skip it. They said, and so we just like played with that. Just went like, we know you're gonna skip this. We know you're gonna skip this. So we're just gonna advise you to do it. And because it was slightly gentler and it was a bit more intriguing, it wasn't brashing in your face and trying to ram the brand down your throat. They said the average view time on these ads was somewhere between like two to three minutes. Like the completion rate was like at 40% for like an ad which ran for like yeah. four or five minutes. Because people were like, what the hell is going on here? Like no one's ever told me to skip their ad before. It's that slight kind of the application of creativity, yeah. but knowing that this is the behavior, everyone's gonna skip this anyway. So just run with it. It's counterintuitive, but then there is the research there that, and there is the insight of, you know, people are curious. There's, there's, there's a lot to be said for, for human curiosity. Yeah. And, and how we can tap into that. Yeah, and that's it. It's, it's the application of creativity, isn't it? It's that whole, we expect a brand to like, come on here, right, we've got five, six seconds before I can skip this. You're gonna do your best to ram this down my throat. And when they don't, 
you kind of like you, you naturally suck people in just with the intrigue of it. Do you think that sometimes content is less of a priority when it comes to digital campaigns because it's like there's new functionality here, we need to use this. And it's almost thinking about using something cool and new and exciting rather than thinking about why why we're using it in the first place. In fairness, like there's a good reason for that sometimes. Like you do a novelty thing and you get a bit of PR value out of it. You know, like the first brand to ever use augmented reality is gonna get coverage from that. You know, I think it wasn't like there was an iced tea brand, I think it was earlier this year or the end of last year, who changed its name to like Bitcoin or blockchain. And all of a sudden, like because it's like you know, the thing du jour, it gets press coverage. So there is something in the novelty factor, but you can't just keep chasing the novelty factor. You know, you still gotta put you know the effort and do the due diligence. You know, and you can see why people would do that because there feels like, oh, it's, it's new, we've got to jump on this. The kids are going to be into this. Uh, but it's, yeah, I mean, like, I think having like a really clear awareness of like, right, following like the Gartner hype cycle, like when this hits like that certain peak, there's all kinds of PR potential there. And if we're doing it for the right reasons, there's a, you know, then let's, let's go for it. But if we're just doing it for the sake of it being new and, you know, the number of marketing conferences this year, which will have like, you know, sessions on what is blockchain. And for like 90% of people who work in like marketing communications, it means nothing. You know, it's got amazing potential for, you know, things like, you know, making your supply chain transparent and, you know, stuff like that. Yeah. Being able to tell a, a brand story, but for most people, not at all. And then, of course, you have KFC saying, oh, we can pay for your bucket of chicken with Bitcoin. Yeah. The one that takes eight, eight minutes to process yeah. the transaction. Well, I think that's, that's the risk is the, like, the people who run into it go, oh, there's a PR opportunity here. Yeah. And then all of a sudden it becomes the topic, you know, du jour. And then people walk away from it rather than going, and actually there probably is some really serious application of this kind of tech, which we could use, but we need to be in this for the long haul. Mm -hmm. You know, all the people who sort of, you know, like I say earlier, like rushed into like chatbots. So, hey, chatbots thing. Oh, we haven't like, and uh, all of a sudden, yay, we've got a little bit of you know, coverage in Mashable because now we've got a chatbot mm -hmm. and done walk away, chat what's a yeah. crap really, aren't they? Oh yeah, and you hit that sort of trough of yeah. disillusionment. When actually you should be going, okay, like they're not gonna be perfect, but they are gonna get better. Like, you know, the natural language processing is gonna improve, like what we can do with this, the nuance is gonna get significantly mm -hmm. better. And, you know, you kind of, you gain the first move of PR advantage and then you lose the long-term benefit of actually really getting to grips with and understanding the tech. So do you think that we're, I mean, specifically with chatbots, I mean, there's other examples as well, but you know, last year that was the thing, everyone's talking about chatbots. And this year it's not really, if anything, it's got that, oh, chatbots didn't really work out. But do you think it's because some brands jumped on the, jumped on the bandwagon a bit early, didn't really think about the long term, and now that, that almost hurts the technology, like it stunts the growth? Or do you think that it's still gonna carry on and eventually it'll re-emerge, I, I don't know. I think, I mean, yeah, I, th I think with chatbots, it probably will re-emerge. I mean, the, the promise and the potential of the tech was huge, you know, the idea of like, you could have almost like a personalized, one-on-one -on -one conversation with anyone round the globe, round the clock. Um, you know, the customer service angle and just the brand experience, absolutely huge potential. And then they're like this crashing kind of like tidal wave of disillusionment, kind of like, and, you know, almost hate against it came in. And it was a bit like you know th when when people first got a home computer, like way back in like kind of the eighties, and you saw the, the blinking cursor, and you thought, you know, I, I've watched like sci-fi films. I'll just type in, okay, computer, what's the weather going to be like tomorrow? And just error. 
you know, and it's that kind of like, it's, it, it's the mismatch between kind of the promise and the expectation and the reality. And, you know, yeah, I think chatbots probably have got a lot of potential and they inevitably will get significantly better, but they were nowhere near, you know, as you know, sort of high tech and high level as people assumed they would be from hearing, you know, the kind of the over-enthusiastic kind of, you know, marketing kind of talking head evangelist about that stuff. So we, we kind of started this off and I asked you about, okay, what are the, what are the campaigns that aren't the 1%? So yeah. I'd like to go back to that, the 1%. And in the, uh, the Q4 edition of Contagious, uh, you, know, you talk about velocity, uh, the billion point giveaway is yeah. one of the best creative, um, I think it was best creative or best strategy. It was one of the yeah. two. Yeah, but, um, it was great. It yeah. was great. It was yeah, brilliant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, it, it, you know, I'd, you know, I'd like to hear a bit more about that. I mean, before we started recording, you you were talking a bit about it, but can you just tell us what what made that really work and what, what where was the insight? Yeah, sure. I mean, just to give so people listening like the, the background to the ad. So it was um, the it's a frequent flyer program in Australia. And they, they ran a campaign called the Billion Point Giveaway. Um, and so the idea was that what actually, I think what some people actually experienced was they sent out an email, you know, saying, um, you know, to their, their user database, saying, you know, okay, we're gonna, we're gonna give away a billion free points. And then immediately said, oh my God, that was a mistake. It was meant to be a million free points. Oh shit, what have we done? What have we done? Um, and, you know, of course, like the press and people Australia just picked up and went, oh my God, this brand's absolutely buggered this up royally. Um, and they jumped on it. You know, of course, it got a lot, of, uh, a lot of buzz, a lot of traction. And then they played out a content series off the back of it. It was a 40-part kind of content series. So um, we interviewed the guys who did it. He told us some really interesting stuff. One was, you know, obviously, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't a mistake. The whole thing was totally planned. So they'd worked out that they said, you know, every year they normally gave away they did around like this 15% kind of free points for when you transfer, you know, um, money from your credit card into like the points system, you get 15% free points. And they said there were so many of these offers around um, amongst like kind of competing rivals. It was just background noise. No one was listening to this stuff. 15% meant nothing to anyone. You're just, you know, another voice, you know, craving for attention, which no one really cared about listening to. And they sat down and worked, sort of worked out, well, what actually is 15% in a tangible sort of thing? What actually does that work out in points? And it turns out it worked out to be a billion points. So I went, that's a lot of points. You know, I'm, you know, a billion sounds like a big number, right? So they, so they had that. They then, um, if you remember, like in 2017, there was a couple of like really big brand cock-ups. So there was like, you know, the rather sort of, you know, ham-fisted kind of, you know, the Pepsi, Kendall, Jenner mm. thing where they tried to jump on, oh, it's, the culture's being a bit politicized, you know. And got a huge backlash against that. And um, again, in the States, there was, you know, United Airlines had a terrible PR disaster off after like one of their passengers got pulled bleeding off a plane and claimed to have been racially profiled. Um, meanwhile, down in Australia, they're sort of watching this and the agency sort of noticed, oh, look, people love it when brands mess up. I mean, they don't love the brands for it, but they love it. They absolutely like, you know, love the kind of, you know, the, uh, the car crash kind of drive by, like, you know, gawping at what's going wrong. So let's engineer that let's deliberately do that so that was a sort of planned thing so they then ran this you know content series where it was meant to be like an intern has had buggered this up they'd pressed b rather than m <laughs> it was billion rather than million and they then sort of you know put this uh bit of content out showing like the ceo going oh my god 
like what has happened? This is like a terrible disaster for us because they needed people to believe like at a CEO level, this was a big, big problem for them. Um, and they then sort of played out like this 40 part content series just in like little bits of content which kind of followed you around the internet. So they were like, you know, sort of kind of pre-roll stuff, you know, things if you went to certain kind of publisher websites, you just see it kind of organically and the story would build and build and people began to um, you know, follow and get kind of really interested in the story. So as I say, when we spoke to the guys, they had some, like, it, some really interesting insight into it, obviously stuff I mentioned. But they said that, uh, let me see if I can remember the results. So they said they had 60% revenue growth off the back of this, which was huge. They said there was like $6 ROI for every dollar spent on the campaign. What's interesting was they said you know, the media budget was actually around about sort of, um, 38, 39% lower than the previous years. Because it worked out that the money they would have spent on the you know, sort of a high, high-end kind of glossy TV ad going, yeah, 15%, you know, sort of off. They could take this exactly same money and run it um, across a 40-part content series. So you get a lot more content um, for, for your money, which gave them a couple of benefits. One of which, of course, instead of just like this one-off, boom, we've got a TV ad and it goes away. Like the content series just played and played, so it just kept it in the public consciousness. So, you know, for a much, much longer period. So all those things, like it was a lovely bit of creative. You actually go and watch, you know, kind of the actual videos. It's lovely. But the, the thinking behind it was just on point. And of course the results just put that cherry on, yeah. the, on the cake, just make it an awesome campaign. Definitely. It was really good. And you can see, I think that insight of people, they don't love the brands necessarily, but they love seeing brands mess up. And yeah. it is something really, you know, powerful about that, that concept. So how can you get your brand to mess up without actually messing up? Yeah, and I think they had a, because, um, oh God, I should have I should have looked this up before I came. I think it was like Virgin Air down in um, Australia. God, I hope I'm right about that. And their frequent flyer thing was called uh, Velocity. Um, Christ, someone looked that up for me. Okay. <laughs> um, but they said there was a huge disconnect between like the brand, which stood for something, you know, and people had a certain view of the airline, and the, the loyalty scheme, which was just seen as really dull, really dry, really kind of corporate and just totally lacking that personality. So it was a really nice way of actually getting a bit of um, you know, synergy between the two things as well. But yeah, like the, the actual, the creative and the content itself was just a joy as well. Yeah, it was, and yeah, I found it was really, the execution was really, really good because that's the kind of thing where it could, you know, if you don't get that right, the whole campaign just falls on its face and yeah. the 40 pieces of content kind of stutter and stuff and then you kind of think, well, maybe we should have just done a TV ad. Yeah, I mean, that's, I think like, a, it is like making good content is tough you know like just making like you know good you know non-branded content is tough you know like you see like watch tv and see how much of it you think is excellent how much is just dross so you not only got to do that you got to get like you know good scripts good actors good direction you know good production values all that stuff you've also got to somehow get a marketing message into it as well you know you're really trying to and like capture people's attention like to pull all that off you know really does deserve some recognition definitely Kind of going back a little bit to the the um, the Pepsi ad that yeah. um, you know it's been a lot of coverage. Everyone's talked about Pepsi ad, so we won't really go into that too much. But you know, one of the things that Contagious Sites is you know an opportunity for 2018 is well, amongst other things, there's the political lifestyle and dynamic data. Um, could you explain a bit about how these two factors you know they can shape branded content for 2018 and beyond? I think. Yeah, I mean the. The politicised sort of nature of culture. I mean, I don't, you know, you don't need to be a, a genius kind of, you know, trend forecast to go. Things are pretty political, um, but you know, they are. That's just the nature of the culture 
we're sort of in. And we saw some really interesting stuff happen like last year where you know some brands like it like it really came like smacked them hard on the arse. You know, like Pepsi, like it was just you know out of step. And you look at um, you know things with you know what happened with you know remember like the delete Uber movement. Mm. You know when um, you know, so Trump sort of announced he's going to do a travel ban. Um, now Uber didn't make any political statement, didn't come up with any political. Advice. They just kept kind of you know running their you know their their service to, to JFK and back, and caused this huge backlash. You know they didn't stand on their values, you know at all about that, and they still kind of felt the wrath of it. And then you see other brands which have managed to um, you know kind of deal with kind of that political backdrop really well. Um, I think you mentioned earlier, like, you know, the jigsaw, you know, heart immigration campaign, you know, from the UK, which was a really nice, um, you know, kind of bringing together of kind of what the brand stands for and what we sort of, I think they described it as, you know, what does the brand care about and what do your customers care about? And you find kind of the intersection of those two things and you go, yeah, if we can get that right, then it made it sort of appropriate for us to do it. But again, like we spoke to the CEO of Jigsaw about that. He said, you know, we, we knew that, you know, this, this was going on. He said, and I speak to, like, people in my stores. My store managers were getting, like, abuse. This was after, like, you know, kind of the Brexit thing and the whole, like, you know, immigrants go home stuff. He was like, I just couldn't stand for that. That was my workforce. So even though it was a scary thing to come out with clearly quite a political statement in an ad, it, it just was the right thing for us to do. And I think that's, you know, looking to this year, you know, it's not going to go away. Again, like, we spoke to the... Um, the uh, head of the Economist and asked us like, "What's you know, what do you think is going to define the year ahead?" And he said, "Like, politicised culture is just here to stay." You know, we had the Winter Olympics, you know, in Korea. Obviously, like, what's going in Korea? You know, reasonably political. But you got like the World Cup in Russia. There's some really big kind of elections going on. He said, "You're not going to be able to get away from politics again this year." So I think you know, brands which can find a way of navigating through that and using it to their advantage while that while not becoming, coming across as being really crass, probably is quite a good opportunity. Mm. Do you think, I mean, I don't, have any, I don't have any research to back this up, so it's always a bit risky when you have to <laughs> start a sentence with, I don't have any research, yeah, but, but I reckon. But yeah. I reckon, I mean, I, looking at the Jigsaw campaign specifically, I, you know, it'd be interesting to talk to Jigsaw and give a bit more uh, insight in that. But I think I don't remember seeing loads of negativity around that campaign. And is it almost a case of, you know, they are in a really good position to come out with that message because you think they're a fashion brand, they're advertising, you know, primarily to a progressive audience in a urban setting. Yeah. Is there something in there to say, well, if they had taken that ad and say pushed it out in the local paper, which they wouldn't have done anyways, but in rural Wiltshire where I live would that have, would you be talking about it in a completely different context, yeah. I think? Well, I think, I mean, if you, could, if you drill into the detail of the campaign, I think it's, it's maybe less risky than it looks, in a way. Because they didn't just come out and go, oh, you know, there's a lot of debate around Brexit going on, and we are pro-immigration. It wasn't as, you know, sort of simple as that. What they actually came out with saying was, we can't live with that. Like, we're born an immigrant. Basically, the first product we ever sold was a coat from Afghanistan. It was an Afghan coat. When we look at like our supply chain, you know, we have these beautiful like you know silks and materials coming from different countries. Like our staff comes from, and he just said, look, we are like a company of immigrants. Our products are like immigrants. Our staff are immigrants. That's just who we are. If you like the look of our clothes, kind of be aware that like, you know, the materials come from all over the place. Our staff come from all over the place. 
Um, so it kind of, while it does have that, you know, it's on the front foot about the political agenda, it's still rooted in like, we can't deny the fact yeah. that this is who we are. And they, they did some nice kind of content stuff off the back of it. So um, the big thing they did was obviously a uh, big sort of outdoor campaign in the Oxford Circus tube station, um, which was just heart immigration and like a big statement about why they were mm. kind of pro-immigration. But they then actually sort of did some really nice stuff on, I think they played it out on Instagram sort of social, yeah. where they did uh, DNA tests on like some of the people who worked. Yeah. I think they got they asked people to volunteer if they wanted. No, they didn't force their like workforce <laughs> yeah. to do it. But they got the workforce to do some DNA tests, and they found out everyone's like genetic history where they were from, yeah. and like, even the most British person was still like not like n there's no one is like a hundred percent like from England or or Britain, and they were all like, wow, I had like you know. I, there's people like, you know, I'm a little bit Mongolian or wherever, and like, you know, they were from, like, people are generally surprised at heritage, which gave them more content to kind of play it out and, mm. and just kind of soften the message, kind of like everyone at some level in their history of their genetic background is an immigrant. So it kind of defrayed that risk a little bit, I think. Definitely. And there's something, that, I mean, because I was, I saw the, the ad and I saw the, the statement, and it was, if you, you know, on the surface of it, if you are inclined <laughs> to be, you know, aggrieved by you know that sort of political side of things, you know you might not look you know, on on face value. You might you know, oh well, you know I'm not going to buy jigsaw's clothes because I you know I think we should do this or do that or whatever. But actually, it's just a statement of fact. It's just saying yeah. oh, this is where our clothes come from. So if we you know this is a bit like um, the uh, the store in Germany uh, that the supermarket that took everything yeah. out of its store that wasn't actually German. And it left it with very little, and they were saying, "Well, if we, if we don't don't have this, then you know we we don't have that." And it's 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 almost putting a factual less, yeah, you know, still you still can't a argue bit emotive, yeah, exactly, yeah. It's still a bit emotive, but you can't sit there and say, you know, they're they're just ramming a political message. Yeah, I mean, when we spoke to the Jigsaw guys, they said actually the riskiest thing, and I think the direct quote from the CEO was, "The night before it went live, I think quote unquote, I was shitting myself." Um, but I think the riskiest thing they did was actually this huge... Um, so imagine, like, you've got Oxford Circus Tube Station. There's, like, nice, uh, <clears throat> you know, sort of image of, you know, some models wearing clothes. And next to it, it's a big statement about why they're pro-immigration. But next to that was this huge, wide, um, you know, kind of outdoor poster, which just had, you know, heart immigration. Black text, white background. So a huge amount of white space. Mm. They said at one point the decision was... Do we go with a black background so no one can graffiti it? Or do we go with a white background and just pray to God? And they said, and they, they said that was the big risk. So they, they kind of rolled the dice and went with a white background. They went down like, you know, 24 hours later, clean. You know, a week later, clean. Not a single person. They said, when you basically like come up with a statement, just like, we love immigration. At a time when, you know, there's you know, some rises in hate crime and, you know, Amnesty International is reporting like rises in like people being attacked because of like, you know, their ethnic background. This thing was spotless. So I guess, you know, this is one of those kind of awkward questions, putting you on the spot, you know, last question of the podcast, but, you know, predictions, next 12 months, anything, are we going to see anything any different from your brands? Are we going to be shocked by any brands? Is there um, anything that's going to change the game? What's going to change the game? I think we'll... Um, I'll make a crap prediction, which is I think there'll be a lot of people talking about blockchain at conferences, which is like... That's, <laughs> that's like this year's, this year's yeah. chatbots or like this year's AI. Um, I think in terms of... 
I think we'll probably see like more brands trying to get to grips and being more successful against this political backdrop. There was a really nice campaign at the start of the year from Burger King in the States where they did a thing about net neutrality. You're like, what the hell is Burger King doing a thing about net neutrality? Yeah. Um, and, but it seemed to work out pretty well for them. It feels like there's genuinely, like coming at it from a, maybe a bit more of an industry point of view, it feels like there's genuinely progress being made on like a staff kind of point of view with like some sort of diversity and talent and you know empowerment of people. It seems like you know, when we talk to people about how they're running their agencies, there's an interesting sort of a bit of a shift in kind of the structure of like less kind of like you know sort of top down like rock star creatives, much more kind of like you're pretty good. Let's let's let you kind of run with that kind of stuff and you know bringing newer, more diverse talent mm. into the uh, industry will be really interesting especially I think you know that the negative flip side of that is you know kind of the the slow kind of march maybe the fast march of like the the consultancies kind of beginning to you know obviously eat more of Adlan's pie um be interesting to see how people deal with that it's been a been a great chat been very insightful thank you very much and uh you know when, when's the next when's the next um, we've just had our print deadline on the magazine so that's uh that'll come out in the next couple of weeks um but like, the, the biggest thing we actually do, which not many people know about, but it's the biggest part of our business, is actually our online mm. uh, sort of kind of research platform, which has all things like, you know, we talked about uh, like the billion point giveaway and yeah. like Jigsaw. All that kind of info comes directly from there more than the magazine. We go like chapter and verse where we like, we'll interview like the CEO of like Jigsaw or we'll interview like the guys who made these campaigns. Yeah. Um, so yeah, if you want to buy that stuff, <laughs> feel free. There we go. Yeah, Thanks for the plug. Definitely. No, uh, we don't mind the shameless plug on here, you know. So, um, yeah, but like I said, thanks, thanks for coming down. Thanks for chatting to us. Oh, and, great chat. Um, looking forward to uh, the next Cool. Edition. Thank you for having me. That's it for this episode, but you can find more insight from Headstream on iTunes, SoundCloud, and, of course, headstream.com.